0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. Bruce Gilley, a professor of political science at Portland State University, is no stranger to controversy. Two years ago, he was targeted by a left-wing outrage mob when he published a polemical essay in Third World Quarterly making the case for colonialism. The editor received death threats, 15 members of the editorial board resigned, and, with Bruce's consent, the article was unpublished, although it was subsequently republished in Academic Questions, the journal of the National Association of Scholars, and can still be found online. Last month, Bruce found himself at the centre of a new free speech battle when his faculty at Portland State University refused to give its impremature of approval to a new course he'd devised on conservative political thought claiming it failed to advance diversity, a university-wide requirement for all new courses. I spoke to Professor Gilly at his home in Portland to talk about this latest controversy. Professor Gilly, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. Um, Portland State recently rejected your application to teach a course on conservative political thought. Do you want to tell us a bit about that course and why Portland has nixed it?
2: Well, it was a course that our political science department agreed uh, was missing from our curriculum in political theory or political philosophy. So uh, we hadn't had anyone to teach it. And I uh, had started to teach it just using a kind of generic course number. Obviously, it's part of a well-rounded education in political philosophy, since it's one of the central approaches to political theory in modern world history. So we went through the process of having it put into the course catalog of the university, because uh, that's how departments take their curriculum and, and institutionalize them. And it went through our department, obviously, it went through our college curriculum committee, just sort of regular procedural things. And then when it got to the university level, because for the last three years we've been required to show that all new courses advance diversity ideology, um, they decided that conservatism did not advance the diversity ideology and therefore the course could not be approved.
1: So on the face of it, that's a little bit puzzling because surely one facet of diversity is viewpoint diversity, and therefore teaching a course on conservative political thought alongside various other forms of political thought, you would have thought would be satisfying that rubric rather than being in conflict with it?
2: Well, I think it's puzzling because no university should impose any ideological criteria on the deliberative and considered opinions of its various units about what constitutes their teaching needs. Um, yes, you could say that diversity of viewpoints is important. Um, the way the university defines diversity in the course requirement procedures is not does not mention viewpoints. It's all about group identity diversity, so in some ways you could say they're just being consistent with that requirement. Uh, I would actually even step back and say, well, why not have a requirement that a course advance unity and togetherness and community? In other words, uh, what we have in common as opposed to what we have different. I mean, and and that again would beg the question, well, why would you do that? So I think the whole, the the bigger issue is why would you impose any ideological or political criteria on courses um, when they're supposed to be left to basically faculty decisions?
1: But... Even if um, you were to accept the prevailing ideology at Portland, couldn't you nevertheless mount an argument that there are a number of diverse voices within the conservative political tradition, including some people of colour, certainly some gay political philosophers, um, certainly some women conservative thinkers... Couldn't you, on those grounds, argue that it conformed with even the narrow ideological definition of diversity that the university is trying to impose? Yes. And most
2: of my colleagues said to me, you know, why didn't you just play the game like that? Uh, Just just fall over yourself with gushing statements of how many people of colour and disabled and lesbian scholars have written conservative uh, contributions and how you're bringing that out. And I think part of me was, you know, it's just fake. It's uh, when a a conservative political theory syllabus includes uh, people who are white males, and mine has a whole section on black American conservatism, you know, they're not there in order to advance a diversity ideology. They're there because they represent a substantive and important contribution to the thinking about conservatism. So I I felt um, I could have played that game, and if I had, I'm sure the course would have been whisked through. But as I've stated elsewhere, I'm at the point where I feel it's wrong to fake adherence to an ideology with which one disagrees and which at a a bigger level is is a kind of poisonous influence on freedoms in a contemporary university.
1: What stage have you got to? Can you appeal the university's decision not to list your course? Or has the final decision been made and is it irrevocable?
2: Uh, everything could be changed, obviously. Um, I mean, one thing I would say is I don't consider this my problem. <laughs> and and when my colleagues have come to me and said, well, that's too bad that happened to you. And I, my response to them, this is not, this didn't happen to me. This happened to you. You know, you are the scholars in the university who are upholding this system and it reflects badly on you and it's your problem because this is essentially a faculty governance issue so I from my own perspective in some ways, this has been a good thing I've uh, attracted a lot of attention uh, worldwide to the uh, you know quite obvious example now that can be cited of how diversity is indeed an impediment to academic excellence and free speech on campus. It can't get any more clear-cut than this example. So that's, I, I think, been a useful reminder. Secondly, I can teach it two more times using a generic course number, and uh, maybe I'll find a way to uh, <laughs> toggle the course number, the name and future and continue teaching it. I'm actually going to turn my version of it this coming year into a MOOC, into an online course. It's freely available, which, which is good. So from my perspective, it, it's fine. Um, there is now an appeal process going on. Some of my colleagues sitting on Faculty Senate have uh, appealed this, and that's something that will be working its way through the process this
1: coming academic year. Now, this isn't the first time you've found yourself at odds with progressive ideologues. Two years ago, you had to face down an outrage mob after you published an essay in Third World Quarterly defending colonialism. And I know various calls were made then for you to be fired from your position as a professor of political science at Portland. Was the faculty supportive then? Did they hold firm and stand by your right to free speech? Or were there signs that... um, they were already beginning to bend with the wind even then?
2: Well, uh, as a state-funded university, our university is required to uphold free speech on campus, and actually the state of Oregon's uh, free speech protections are actually more robust than those in the federal constitution. So I think the legal counsel (laughs) quickly realized they could not punish me, and they would have themselves a uh, problem if they did. So uh, the university's response was essentially to quote contractual and legal language to the effect that I couldn't be fired. So I don't know. Is that support? uh, Or is that, I'm sorry, we'd love to fire him and turn the university into a bastion of progressive social justice warriors, but this bothersome thing called the state constitution prevents it. My feeling was the university and the faculty were spineless and simply remained silent for most of the time. Uh, and as i commented elsewhere, it, it was particularly ironic since our new president at the time was a refugee from the Iranian Revolution who had been granted amnesty by Jimmy Carter while he was a grad student in the US. You know, Of all people who should have recognized the threat of theocratic and ideological mobs to a free society, and should have stood up against it, it should have been him. But we had nothing but silence.
1: In general, what's Portland's record when it comes to these free speech issues? Is it poorer than that of other universities, in part because it's located in Portland, and Portland is ground zero of the social justice movement? No, I don't think so, actually. I think it's a
2: fluke that myself and my colleague in the Philosophy department, Peter Bogosian, who is, of course, the famous author of the Grievance Studies hoax articles, uh, just happened to be in Portland. Um, because actually, I think um, as a university in a major city, we probably have uh, a little bit more groundedness than the faculties um, at, let's say, the University of Oregon, which is in a small college town, certainly than the liberal arts colleges in the American. Uh, Midwest and Northeast um, evergreen state college across the border in Washington state. So actually I I don't think it's because Portland state university is particularly loony in this respect. I think it's just a fluke that you have two scholars who are pushing back on that agenda in Portland. Um, And I think the problem is the sort of what this really shows is, you know, where are the Gillies and Bogosians at the other progressive universities who should be kicking up the storm and are not. Um, it's not a reflection that those universities are tolerant. It's a reflection of the complete absence at this point in history of anything suggestive of moderate or centre-right or conservative opinion.
1: Can you give us any updates on Peter Burgosian's misconduct investigation? Uh,
2: It's been concluded and he has been found guilty of violating human subjects review protocols by using the peer review reviewers of the journals that the hoax articles were submitted to as human subjects, which is a completely absurd finding suggesting that (laughs) that when you stress test the system that you need to tell the People who are being stress tested in advance, uh, what you're about to do, which is of course defeats the whole purpose of it. I believe he has released that on his blog now, and, uh, and I believe maybe taking the leave of absence. And um, I head the Oregon chapter of National Association of Scholars, and we have certainly encouraged
1: him to pursue legal remedies to the full extent possible. Now, you wrote a piece for Quillette last weekend that accompanied a piece I wrote about wanting to set up a free speech trade union here in the UK about why you'd set up the Oregon chapter of the National Association of Scholars, of which you're now the head. Have you been engaged in many local battles to protect free speech in Oregon in in that capacity?
2: Well, I think the National Association of Scholars, as the name suggests, is not a typical advocacy or interest group body. It's a group of scholars and intellectuals and well-educated people from the public who are trying to um, improve the quality of public discourse and bring a greater diversity of views to bear on issues in higher education and K-12 education as well. So we tend to think of ourselves more as acting as a um, a voice of conscience on matters of higher education as well as K-12 education in the state. So we issue reports, we make statements, we talk to the media. You know, so much of the legitimacy of alternative views depends on on, you know, being reasonable and simply making reasonable arguments rather than getting caught up in Cat fights. So I wouldn't say battles, but we've certainly made our voice known. And certainly in a very progressive state like Oregon, our voice has been welcomed when we've called out some of the more lunatic acts of our state legislature or of the universities.
1: And you said that um, you're advising Peter Bogosian to uh, seek legal remedies to the guilty verdict that's been handed down by the university. Does the National Association of Scholars provide legal advice to uh, its members or uh, does it just uh, refer them to a list of approved legal experts?
2: Yeah, usually the latter. So legal representation is, of course, most effective simply in making sure the parties reach an agreement out of court. You never want to find yourself in a I think the last major court case in our state uh, with respect to higher education is about 30 years ago I mean in terms of faculty free speech issues when a English faculty member at Portland State was reinstated um, after being essentially let go because he wasn't left wing enough but uh, but it's rare for things to get to that stage it's more about advice and making sure that, the the universities uh, or the boards who are being challenged recognize that they have a legal liability and to get them to do the right thing before it gets to the point of court
1: proceedings. The reason I ask that is because one of the issues I've been debating with respect to the organization I want to set up is whether it should offer members some form of legal insurance whereby if they do find themselves being put through a disciplinary or complaints procedure or if they're fired um, they would have access to uh, lawyers provided by my organisation and that isn't something that the NAS does and I wondered whether there was a good practical reason for why the NAS doesn't do that which, um, which I should be aware of um, before making my decision well the, the practical reason is that if someone
2: has been legally wronged in higher education let's say or in free speech matter um the party that wronged them if they have good legal counsel will very quickly recognize that they've done wrong and they will settle it quickly so you know it In those types of cases, you don't need a lawyer because the other side knows uh, where it would lead if you got one. So typically what we're dealing with is not those kind of clear cut cases, um, but we're dealing with instances where there is a uh, possibility of a wrong. And what you're hoping is the parties to reach some agreement that recognizes that. And so you're not talking really about about lawyers being fully engaged, but maybe having a list of lawyers willing to uh, do some pro bono advice or, you know, a few hours consultation. And that's more just um, making yourself a, a resource for directing people to those type of attorneys rather than actually providing them with, you know, insurance to pay legal costs.
1: One of the arguments that's been made against setting up a free speech trade union here in Britain is that actually there is no assault on free speech taking place uh, in British or American universities. There are a few isolated examples, um, but conservatives cherry pick them and blow them up out of all proportion to create the impression that there is an issue, but actually it's a malady Imaginaire and free speech is very healthy. It doesn't need any additional protections as someone who's, you know, at the front line, as it were in the U S and engaged in these kinds of battles for free speech. What do you say to that? I don't disagree with that, but it's missing the point. So
2: if you're, you know, when I was in Oxford a few months ago, um, and was mentioning, uh, you know my my alma mater, Teddy Hall,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, St. Edmund Hall at Oxford, and I, and I said, well, okay, look, I'm a I'm a I'm an undergraduate, and I'm interested in why center right Christian Democrat parties have dominated the political landscape in Western Europe since World War II, and my choices of tutors would consist of three faculty members: one is a Marxist, one is a feminist, and one is a postmodern postcolonialist. Now. Is there a free speech crisis on campus? Well, no. Uh, I can go to those tutors and I can say I'm very interested in the Christian Democrats, and they will tell me one of three things. One is the Christian Democrats represent uh, capitalist exploitation. Uh, the second thing is they represent uh, patriarchal traditional values. And the third is that they represent uh, Western evil doing and the uh, horrible effects of the Enlightenment. So... Do we have a free speech on camp problem on campus? Well, no and yes. No, in the sense of the person, the student or the, the person on campus could, uh, could dissent. But, but, but the problem with the free speech campus crisis is not you can't say things. It's that the entire higher education ecosystem has slowly become one of intellectual monoculture in which alternative viewpoints are not heard, not because they're censored, but because there's no one to advocate for them or give them the space that would normally be accorded to them in a free society.
1: And do you have any theories uh, about how the academy became a monoculture? On the face of it, you would think that given that universities in part were created to defend intellectual freedom and to create spaces where different Dangerous ideas could be explored, and given that, for the most part, academics are highly intelligent, highly educated people who you would expect to disagree and think critically and be independent-minded. How, in spite of that, has this monoculture emerged?
2: I, I think it's it's a very clear study of the sociology of of living and working with like-minded people. And, you know, there's a famous study on housing segregation in the U S by Thomas Schelling that, uh, showed that, you know, if people have the ability to pick and choose their neighbors, uh, they may not mind having a black person as one of their neighbors, but they certainly want, don't want two black neighbors. They want sort of three white neighbors and maybe one black neighbor. And the effect of that, what's called a weak preference is over time, you get complete segregation you get an entirely white neighborhood and an entirely black neighborhood and i think that's what's happened in the academy you ask an academic and they'll say do you you know do you want diverse faculty with different viewpoints and they'll say well yeah I, you know i don't mind a few conservatives hanging around but i really would prefer marxists and feminists and eco warriors and postmodernists And the result of that over time, as that weak preference plays out over decades and decades is you get a complete monoculture, you get complete segregation. And I think that's what's happened in the academy.
0: Are there any
1: advantages for being a member of what is in effect a tiny beleaguered minority in the academy? Do you get more attention than you otherwise would being, you know, the only right of centre voice? in your department assuming that's the case um do do you attract students in a way that the left of center professors can't um do you get asked to appear more on you know cnn to discuss things like mass shootings because they want to have a diversity of viewpoints maybe not cnn uh
2: i don't think so i think I, i think in the end of the day uh anyone who is an educated person interested in understanding the world and and the truth about the world is at the end of the day concerned about a valid and reliable (laughs) view of reality prevailing in our understanding of whatever phenomena it is we're talking about. And it is rather, I think, just quite disheartening to see major issues of world history or politics or economics, um, being so systematically misunderstood in what should be the place of truth seeking. And then we see the results of that playing out in our politics, in our economics, in our global governance and international politics. You know, there's certainly something to be said for feeling, uh, you're doing a service when you're providing those students with a kind of refuge, um, when they come back from the classroom in which they've been, uh, Told that communism was a great thing, um, so there is a certain a certain satisfaction in providing that. But I think the bigger picture is we. It's disheartening to know that one is in a minority, and it's precisely that reason why even the conservatives who are valued in their departments eventually exit the business because they find it to be um, a disheartening
1: prospect to see the
2: academy failing in its core mission.
0: Given
1: that there are fewer and fewer conservative voices in the academy, particularly in the humanities and the social sciences. Do you find that there is a greater and greater hunger amongst ordinary people, amongst lay people to hear those conservative viewpoints? Because they don't hear them in the academy, they don't generally hear them in the media, in their workplaces, because the progressive point of view has become so dominant. Do you find that there is a groundswell of demand amongst ordinary people, particularly in the privacy of their own homes when sitting down in front of their laptops to hear voices like yours? Do you think that there'll be a huge uptake when uh, when you do produce your MOOC on conservative thought?
2: Yeah, no, I think I think um, as as we often say, you know, don't don't mistake the uh, the chattering classes for the educated classes, because the two groups are not congruent, um, and simply because progressive viewpoints um, have dominated institutions of education and even the media uh, doesn't mean that educated people necessarily accept all those viewpoints. And yes, there is, a, there is a demand and a need, and we see this in book sales, for example, um, um, which is, I think, to me, the great, the great democratic world of the educated public is to look at how book sales actually are much more diverse. And, you know, look at the bestsellers, and there's a good mix of both liberal and conservative bestsellers on issues of contemporary politics and society, um, and yes, MOOCs and you know, videos that uh, advance a different agenda do get a lot of uptake. So yes, the hunger is there. The issue is that we're creating this, um, essentially this disconnect for our students because they're going through the universities and they're not being exposed to the best worked up arguments from different viewpoints, in particular from conservative viewpoints and uh, they'll get out into the world and their only explanation to themselves about how it is that conservative parties tend to do very well, if not dominate in many countries, is it must be some flaw in democracy. In other words, it's not because of good arguments, it's because of some nefarious, you know, the Cook brothers or dark forces of the right. And this creates an alienation. and, And we're seeing the effects of that alienation in our youth, again and again low voting turnout uh, tending to turn to protest rather than argument when they don't get their way sense of despair even about their ability to have efficacy over their society um, you know th- those are things we should all be concerned about. When do you think your MOOC will be published? Yeah I will I will use my teaching of my conservatism course this spring of 2020 as the basis for that and then we'll put the MOOC together. I've had several people just come out of the woodwork from around the country who work in, in the technical fields, say they will provide some free support for that, and so I expect it to launch in the summer of 2020, a year from now. Great. Well, look, I'll
1: very much look forward to watching that. Good luck uh, with um, all your battles at uh, the at Portland State. Um, Professor Gilly, thank you very much for talking to Quillette.